Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. On June 7th, 1776, Richard Henry Lee, who was a delegate from Virginia, read a resolution before the Continental Congress that the United Colonies had a right to be free and independent states. But consideration of the Lee Resolution was postponed on June 11th, and Congress recessed for three weeks. And then on July 1st, 1776, the Continental Congress reconvened and took up the issue of independence once again. And what ensued was, we're told, a passionate debate between two major figures. Opposing the resolution was Pennsylvania Delegate John Dickinson, who led off the debate. And then rising to speak for the resolution was Massachusetts Delegate John Adams, whose hour-long presentation was reported by many other delegates to have demonstrated not only the justice but the expediency of the measure. And after Adams, the discussion continued, lasting a total of nine hours. But when a preliminary vote was taken, the outcome appeared to be very much in doubt. And so a motion to postpone consideration until the next day was received and approved. But by the time the next vote was called, on July 2nd, the situation had changed. And on that day... The consideration was received and approved. And what remained now was the need to adopt the formal declaration which Thomas Jefferson had been entrusted to write on behalf of the drafting committee. And the review of Jefferson's draft began first thing on the morning of July 3rd, and it took until 11 a.m. on July 4th, and then the declaration was finalized. And then the declaration or the delegates from 12 colonies voted on the declaration with only New York abstaining. So it passed, and of course the news spread like wildfire. And the words which rang out that day have rung down through the ages. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. They seem to have forgotten that today. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And, of course, it continued, and they laid out their grievances against the king, and the declaration closed with these words. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, 
We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And of course, the rest, as they say, is history. The war with Great Britain had started in April of 1775 when the British marched on Lexington and Concord. And though the British fight against the Americans ended with the Battle of Yorktown when General Cornwallis surrendered in October of 1781, it did not formally end until the Treaty of Paris was signed between Great Britain and the United States on September 3, 1783, and it was ratified that spring. And today, our nation is celebrating its 245th anniversary of our independence. And I think everyone here would agree that we are blessed beyond measure that God in his providence allowed us to be born in this country where we enjoy freedoms the rest of the world has never known. I mean, we could have been born in poverty and squalor in a third world country. We could have been born under a tyrannical a communist regime or in a Muslim country under Sharia law. But God in his mercy allowed us to be born here. And we are greatly, greatly blessed. And it saddens me, as I'm sure it does all of you, to see what is becoming of our nation and all of it ultimately re related to our rejection of God and his word. But the good news is there's a, a number of people just like us, a great number of people across this country praying for God's divine intervention. I mean, praying for a revival in this land of such magnitude that it would turn the course of our nation. So we're thankful for the many blessings uh, that we have and that we enjoy. But, but here's something we need to remember. That as Christians, or Christians, are a blessed people no matter where they live. No matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter what kind of government they may live under. And as far as the Word of God is concerned, and that's really all that matters, the truly blessed man, the truly blessed individual is not the person who lives in the United States, though that is truly a great blessing, but the Bible says the truly blessed man is the man who loves God's Word and walks in his ways. I mean, this is the blessed man. This is the truly happy man. This is the man whose life is filled not with a superficial happiness that comes and goes, but rather with a deep sense of joy from God's grace in his life. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Well, with this in mind, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read God's Word. So stand, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. And if you'll follow along now as I read our text, Psalm chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. This first psalm uh, is unknown as far as to the writer. There have been many suggestions made as to who perhaps uh, composed it, but the fact of the matter is we don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us. But this first psalm is a wisdom psalm. It's one that provides guidance for godly living. One commentator said, like a clearly marked entrance to the path of righteousness, Psalm 1 serves as an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, directing all travelers to the path of God's blessedness. 
May Psalm 1 introduces us to the way in which we may find true happiness and fulfillment in life. May Psalm 1, as, as all of Scripture does, really reduces the, the complexity of man's problems down to just one thing. And the Bible always puts it like this. You're confronted with two alternatives, and there are only two. And it says that from, beginning of the end, to the, from the beginning to the end. There are only two alternatives, the way of God and the way of Satan. The way of Abel and the way of Cain, the way of Jacob and the way of Esau. Psalm 1 describes for us two kinds of people living two kinds of lives with two different outcomes. And here in this first psalm, we see a man who is a godly man, a righteous man. And in contrast, we see the ungodly, the wicked. And it's always these two alternatives. Psalm 1 differentiates between these two paths of life. One way leads to blessing, the other to cursing. One to salvation, the other to destruction. There are only two ways, two roads in life. The way of the godly and the way of the ungodly, and they lead to two opposite destinies. One leads to life, the other leads to death. So Psalm 1 introduces us to the doctrine of the two ways. Here, two ways, two types of people, two destinies are are clearly spelled out. And Jesus summed up the concern of Psalm 1 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he spoke about the choices that must be made between two gates and two roads. Two trees and two types of fruit, two houses and two foundations. Regarding the two gates and the two ways, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's always the few and the many. The few and the many. And Psalm 1 is the clearest, most carefully developed, and the first full expression of this idea in Scripture. One man said, Psalm 1 deliberately draws two portraits in our minds. The portrait of the wicked man and the portrait of the wise man. The question then is posed, which are we? As we enter the sanctuary of the Psalms to worship and petition the Lord, whose side are we on? I mean, the Bible, the Word of God, and Psalm 1 specifically, puts the situation simply and directly and reduces all the complexities to this, just this one thing. There are only two ways. There's a wrong way and a right way, and which way am I going? So Psalm 1 presents a powerful contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and it naturally divides into two parts. The way of the righteous in verses 1 to 3, and the way of the ungodly in verses 4 to 6. And the psalmist considers the states of both in some detail. Notice now, if you will, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so Psalm 1 begins with, blessed is the man. And this word blessed translates a Hebrew word which could be translated, oh, how happy, or oh, how very happy. Although the word happy is is a synonym, it's not a really good one. Because we need to understand that this word blessed conveys far more than superficial feelings of happiness that come and go based upon one's changing circumstances. I mean, this word blessed is a term that refers to the joyful, spiritual condition of those who are right with God and, and the pleasure and satisfaction that is derived then from that fellowship. It's stressing the fullness of joy, an overflowing joy and full contentment in God, a, a satisfaction and, and happiness found only in the Lord. It's expressing God's redemptive favor upon the person who fears the Lord and pursues His will, and and it's plural, and so it could be paraphrased, oh, the heavenly happinesses, or the heavenly blessedness, or blessednesses. And of course, this blessedness is not deserved. Rather, it's a gracious gift of God not dependent upon our circumstances, but rather upon our relationship with him. So the psalmist tells us 
This man is blessed. He's, he's happy. He's joyful. And you'll notice it is not blessed is the king or blessed is the scholar or blessed are the rich. It simply says blessed is the man. As Spurgeon said, this blessedness is as attainable by the poor, the forgotten, and the obscure as by those whose names figure in history and are trumpeted by fame. So the first thing this psalm tells us is that blessedness, true happiness, is in fact possible. And so the question then is how did this man become blessed? How, how did he come to experience this happiness? Well, Psalm 1 tells us that it doesn't depend ultimately upon circumstances, which is what most people think, isn't it? Most people think that happiness depends upon circumstances. And so if my wallet or my bank account is full of money and and the sun is shining, then all is well. But if I lose my money or if circumstances go against me, well, how in the world could I possibly be happy? Human happiness depends upon circumstances and events, on on happenings. But biblical blessedness, biblical happiness that we're speaking about here doesn't depend upon those things, not at all. This blessedness, this happiness must never be sought as an end in and of itself. Because this blessedness is the byproduct of something else. I mean, look at the verse. The verse does not say, blessed is the man who seeks after blessedness. It doesn't say that, does it? No, it says, blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked and goes on, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The man who is blessed is not seeking after blessedness, but rather he's seeking after God. His soul's satisfaction is found in the Lord himself. And this promise of of blessing is precisely what Jesus announced in the Beatitudes when he said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. Why? Well, Jesus said, for they shall be satisfied. Not blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness, but rather blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones that will be satisfied. It's not people who are seeking after happiness, but people who are seeking after God, who are, who are pursuing Him with all that is within them. People who are seeking after righteousness, they're the ones who'll find it. I mean, true happiness, that is, true joy and, and full contentment is the experience of all of those who trust in the Lord. The psalmist said in Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The righteous are genuinely satisfied in the Lord. And so the Bible in this psalm tells us that happiness depends upon two things only. First, it depends upon our relationship to God and seeking after Him. It depends upon His righteousness. And second, it depends on what I am, not upon what is happening to me. This blessed life is first described negatively or in terms of what the godly person does not do. And of course, modern psychology would have us uh, to emphasize the positive. But God begins by emphasizing the negative. And it's, it's actually it's that way throughout Scripture. We'll never understand the, the glory of the good news until we understand how serious the bad news is. And so as if the psalmist has absolutely no concern whatever for uh, good marketing... He begins with the negative. The blessed man is described by what he avoids and and what he rejects. And I find that very interesting because uh, we hear uh, the mantra in the church today that we should be known for what we are for, not what we are against. But here right off the bat, the psalmist tells us what the blessed man, the godly man, avoids. What he refuses, what he rejects, what he is against. 
The blessed man or the man enjoying God's blessing is the separated man. He's a man who's not neutral, but rather a man who is against evil in all of its forms. Look, we're we're told the blessed man is the one. Look at verse 1. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And that could, you know, the ungodly or unbelievers. Doesn't necessarily mean someone who is just uh, practicing overt wickedness so that we could see it, but it's just speaking of the ungodly, the unbeliever. So blessed, we're told, is the, the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or unbelievers. And of course, as you know from our study in Scripture, the word walk speaks of how you live, whether morally or, or ethically or not. And here it refers to living according to the counsel of, of the ungodly. And the word counsel or, or the advice of the wicked has to do with a way of thinking, with forming plans, with a mindset and an outlook. The ungodly trusts in his own wisdom, his own understanding, his own knowledge, human counsel. He trusts in his own reason. He trusts himself and his own innate powers. And, and he dismisses God and everything that God represents. And that's why we read in Psalm 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. But the psalmist is telling us the godly man avoids such counsel. The godly man refuses the secular philosophy and, and humanistic values of the godless. He refuses the worldview that places man at, at the center of the universe and entices him to live by his own standards of morality and pursuits of pleasure. He doesn't listen to the whole outlook of the world which is without God and opposed to God and doesn't recognize him. I mean, God is, is not in the thoughts of the ungodly or the unbeliever. And of course, many Christians fail just at this point. They don't even consider oftentimes that the counsel they're getting is godly or ungodly. They hear advice or, or theories about their problems and, and they find themselves agreeing or disagreeing without considering, is this truly godly counsel or is this ungodly? And with all the advice that comes to us from so many different sources, the godly man knows how to discern and how to stay away from the counsel of the ungodly. And so the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And secondly, we're told the blessed man, look back at verse 1 if you will. We're told the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. The word stand speaks of halting or stopping to consider. The word way speaks of one's whole manner of life, including what directs it and what it produces. It refers to a lifestyle, a path you follow through life. And so the way of sinners speaks of, of their behavior, their actions, their practices. And so the focus here shifts from the advice offered by the godless to their lifestyle or pattern of behavior. Of course, we know the sinner lives to satisfy his flesh and, and his passions. He lives to eat and drink and, and to indulge in sexual pleasure. But the godly man, the man who is blessed, doesn't stop to consider living that kind of a lifestyle. Rather, he resists the lure of the crowd to participate in their carnal activities and sensual living. He resists that. He doesn't stand in this path. He doesn't stop in this path, lingering with those who are walking in it. And listen to the unsaved, the, the, the way of sinners, it seems good. It's exciting to them. I mean, it's the path they want to be on. But the psalmist warns that it's actually a fast track to emptiness and, and frustration and ultimately to destruction. It's the fast track to the judgment, the judgment that is to come. And the godly man stays off this path. And I want to just add something here. 
Because this is so often where uh, fundamentalists have completely failed. It is not contact with the unbeliever that the godly seek to avoid. Aren't we supposed to be light and salt? Aren't we supposed to uh, love our neighbor even as we love ourselves? Aren't we to do good to everyone, especially those with the household of God? Well, you can't do those things if you avoid any contact with people whatsoever, can you? No, there's nothing wrong with being friendly with lost men and women. I mean, of course not. Jesus was. He made friends with all kinds of people. In fact, he was called. That was one of the things they, accusations they hurled against him, that he was a friend of publicans and sinners, you know, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Heaven forbid. But something else that needs to be said here as well. Jesus did not befriend sinners to sin with them. But in order to lead them to a higher, holier way of life through salvation and trust in Him alone for salvation. Psalm 1 teaches we're not to stand in the way of sinners. We're, We're not to participate in their sinful activities. And third, the psalmist tells us the blessed man, please notice the verse again, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And the word sit speaks of joining in collusion with the scorners, you know, being identified with them. And the word scoffers, it speaks of those who hold nothing sacred. You know, scoffing at God and all that is associated with Him, His Word, His commands. They, they scoff at marriage, they scoff at morality and decency and, and call it self-expression. I mean, these are the people that that make fun of everything. I mean, nothing is to be admired. Everything is to be laughed at and and joked about, God included. And they make you feel stupid for trying to follow God. You know the type of person I'm talking about. And to sit with such people takes us a step further than walking and standing. This now implies a kind of belonging. Belonging. It suggests remaining or abiding with them and actually enjoying their company, being very comfortable with them and the unbelief and, the, and their unbelief. I mean, scoffers love to sit and criticize the people of God and the things of God. But the godly man will not sit in that seat. The godly man will not tolerate that. The godly person always feels out of place around those kind of people. He refuses to associate with those who scoff at God. He avoids close relationships with blasphemers and infidels and atheists, no matter how prosperous they may be, because bad company corrupts good character. And so the psalmist tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And those words, walk, sit, stand, tell us that the way of the wicked is is a downward spiral. And the sinners always go from bad to worse. Man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. He has an evil, unbelieving heart. And as Paul told Timothy, though it was in the context of false teachers, it is true of unbelievers in general. He said, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The sinner descends from one who is wicked, meaning corrupt internally, to being a sinner or the one who practices sin, and finally to being a scoffer, one who mocks God and holy things. And this downhill slide begins with the counsel of the wicked or, the unga- or ungodly thinking. It digresses to the way of sinners, an ungodly lifestyle and behavior, and it ends up sitting in the seat of scoffers or aligning yourself or becoming comfortable with those who scoff at God and the unbelief that wants nothing to do with godliness and faithfulness. But, the psalmist says, oh, how blessed. 
Oh, how happy is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You know, he doesn't live like an unbeliever. No, this man, the blessed man, is countercultural. Countercultural. He's different. He's set apart. He's not just a, a nice, you know, easy kind of, uh, easygoing kind of guy who's soft spoken and, and just goes along with everything in the name of tolerance. I mean, there's a difference between the righteous man here and what our culture calls just, you know, just a good old boy. Because the godly man resists the pull of the culture. He resists peer pressure. Oh, he gets plenty of peer pressure, and it, and it may cost him, but the righteous man is the one who doesn't go with the flow. I mean, we, we have to remember that the lure of the wicked and sinners and scoffers doesn't appear in its grossest form. I mean, it may come from teachers or friends, or, or family, or, or spouses suggesting that, you know, unless you uh, think this way, you're going to be thought of as, as being not too bright. Or, you know, if you don't act this way, I mean, you're, pff, I mean, you're so uncool. Or, or if you don't, you know, laugh at what they mock, they won't want any part of you. But the man who is blessed, the blessed man, doesn't care. And so the blessed man is first known by what he does not do, by what he rejects, by what he avoids. But there's also a positive side of the believer's direction. Verse 1 is the negative side, what the blessed man does not do. And we might think that because verse 1 tells us who the godly man does not associate with, that verse 2 would tell us, who he does associate with. In other words, that he is a person who associates with the godly. And though that is certainly true, that a godly person does associate with the godly, because if he loves God, he, he is going to love the people of God. But that is not what the psalmist tells us. Instead, in verse 2, he tells us what the godly man does. And in verse 3, what the godly man is like. Look at verse 2. We read in verse 2 that the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now the psalmist has already told us that the godly person does not take counsel from the wicked. And now he states it positively. The godly person takes his counsel from the word of God, here referred to as the law of God. And throughout the psalms, that the phrase law of God is used as a synonym for God's entire word. So the psalmist is telling us the righteous man, uh, he delights in the Word of God. He absolutely delights in it. Well, what does it mean to delight in the Word of God? Well, this word delight speaks of extreme pleasure or, or finding satisfaction in. You know, if a man is in love with a woman, he delights in her, doesn't he? He, he desires to spend time with her. And when he's with her, he gives her his full attention, at least before the invention of smartphones, right? But he gives her his full attention. You know, he drinks in every word she says. As one man said, he's, he's just intoxicated with her beauty. And the psalmist is telling us that's the way it is with the godly person in the Word of God. The Scriptures are his delight. It brings him joy and satisfaction. He, he finds pleasure in, in listening to God and His Word. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And then in verse 103 of Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Loved ones, we should never reduce Christianity to a matter of demands and resolutions and willpower. Because it's a matter of what we love. 
What is the first great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? You'll love, you're going to love God with your whole being. And if we love God, we're going to delight in him. You know, we do, what we delight in, uh, what tastes uh, good to us are the things of God, the word of God. You know, when Jesus came into the world, humanity was split according to what they loved. In John 3.19, we're told the light came into the world. And men, what? Loved darkness rather than light. The righteous and the wicked are separated by what they delight in, what they love. The person who knows genuine joy reads and enjoys God's Word. And this hunger for the Word of God is a clear indication of the new birth as his nature, the new believer's nature, longs for the truths of God's Word. You know, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. John Stott said that this delight is an indication of the new birth, for the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. As a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, however, the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of their God. They do not rebel against its exacting demands. Their whole being approves and endorses it. I mean, if a person delights in something, we all know this, if a person delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it, do you? You don't have to beg them to like it. I mean, they like it and they'll do it all by themselves. And again, that, that, that is one important sign that someone has genuinely come to faith that he or she has a new hunger for God's Word. They they love to read it. They love to to sit under the preaching of it. They love to meditate upon it. So the blessed man finds unspeakable joy in God's Word because he loves God. And he wants to learn how to please God. And you're only going to delight in God's Word if you already delight in God Himself. And so you can measure your delight for the Word of God by how much you hunger for it. The blessed man, the man who knows true happiness, is the man who delights in the Word of God. He doesn't read just because he has an intellectual interest in it or merely because he's afraid of not doing so or because he he thinks it may help him. No, he reads it because he's seeking after God. And therefore, he delights in God's Word. He has pleasure in it and and therefore, we see in the rest in verse two, on his law, on God's law, this man meditates day and night. The godly person also meditates on the word of God day and night, which is just a figure of speech that means all the time. It's always on his mind. And this word meditate means to murmur or to mutter. And it means speaking to oneself in a low voice. And this word is found mainly in the poetry literature of the Old Testament, particularly in Psalms and then also in Isaiah. And it was used to refer to righteous ponderings and reflective meditation. Now, of course, in Eastern meditation, the goal is to empty the mind, right? And this is absolutely dangerous because an empty mind may present an open invitation to deception or a demonic spirit. But in Christian meditation, the goal is to fill your mind, not empty it, but fill your mind with the Word of God. And this is done by carefully thinking about every word and every phrase as you read, you know, mulling it over, just just chewing on it, so to speak, because the Word of God releases its flavor as we chew on it over time. I mean, the godly person constantly sets his mind on the truths of Scripture throughout the day, focusing on God's Word because it reveals the glory of God and and God's supremacy. As one man said, the Word of God is never far from the thoughts of the believer. When he is depressed or distressed, he calls to mind its promises. When he is uncertain and perplexed, he considers its guidelines. 
When his sins loom before him like evil menaces, he ponders its glorious proclamation of the love of God in and through Jesus Christ. He finds that the word of God has a joy for every sorrow and a truth for every situation. And so the righteous man, the, the, the blessed man, doesn't just hear the word of God and forget it. He thinks about it. He meditates on God's word. And though it's not in our text, we know from our study in James, then he is also someone who does the word. He doesn't just hear it and think about it. He actually does it. He applies it in his life. He lives it out. Loved ones, God doesn't have a plan uh, or, or a program by which you, you can grow and mature as a believer apart from His Word. And there are those prideful people that think they know it all. But there's no growing and maturing as a believer apart from God's Word. You can read all the books you want. You can read all the books about the Bible you want. Are they helpful? Certainly they're helpful. But growth and maturity is not going to come apart from God's Word, God's Word itself. I mean, you can become very busy in in, uh, church, but you're not going to grow by means of activity. You grow by hearing and reading and then meditating upon the Word of God. That is, by going over it again and again until it becomes a part of your life. And this is the practice of the blessed man. You see, the way we treat the Word of God is the way that we actually treat Christ. He's the living Word. And the Bible is His Word to us. And next, the psalmist tells us that what the godly man who delights and meditates on the Word of God is like. Look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. So the godly man is like a tree planted. So this tree has been planted, right? This is a tree that was Chosen and planted by the Creator. The godly man is like a tree. And what what does a tree suggest? Well, strength and stability. It suggests fruitfulness. It it suggests beauty. It, It suggests refreshing shade. The person who delights in, in God's law will be like a tree planted by streams of water. I mean, the the land around might be hot and dry and barren. The winds might be hot. But if the tree is planted by the stream so that it, it can sink its roots down and draw nourishment, it's going to prosper and yield fruit. You see, the God-centered life draws its spiritual strength and vitality from God's Word, which is compared to streams of water. And the, this word streams is, is in the plural. So it speaks of the abundant, overflowing supply of strength and sustaining grace conveyed in God's Word. So the godly man is like a tree planted by a stream which will never run dry. A stream that refreshes, revives, renews, cleanses, and and satisfies those who draw upon it. You know, God's Word sustains the godly. And secondly, we're told told he is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season. And this picture is a continual fruitfulness in, in every season of life, whether good times or bad times, triumphs or trials. And there are times when it seems that, that spiritual fruit in our lives is scarce. But there's still fruit to some degree. Thirdly, when indwelt by by the living word, the leaf of the righteous doesn't wither, we're told. It doesn't wither, meaning that all he does will have eternal value and and lasting results. As D.L. Moody put it, all the Lord's trees are evergreen. (laughs) And not only that, God's word is so powerful that fourthly, we're told 
that in all that he does, the godly man prospers. In other words, he will enjoy a spiritually enriched life, which is the the fullest life imaginable. Of course, prosperity preachers and those who are into that kind of doctrine read this verse with dollar signs in their eyes. But the Hebrew verb translated prospers means to succeed, to accomplish the work you set out to do. So this doesn't mean that your business will make a big profit and your health will always be good and there will be no food shortages or car accidents or violence or suffering or sorrow and difficulty. It doesn't mean any of that. Because God does not spare even His most faithful people from difficulty in this world. I mean, there are many passages of Scripture that tell us many are the afflictions of the righteous. I mean, Psalm 73 expresses the reality that often the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. So it isn't that the righteous man has a Midas touch and everything he does makes him rich and comfortable. That's not what it means but rather that in the life of the righteous man, God brings forth something good and wonderful out of everything, out of absolutely everything. Even tough circumstances shall bring forth something that shall prosper. You see, in God's economy, the work He gives often prospers through our own suffering and humiliation. The blessing... is that this pain and confusion is not pointless. Because the work God gives us to do in the place He plants us will prosper as we faithfully turn from sin, delight in God's Word, and meditate upon it in our pursuit of Him. When the delighting person has strength and stability in the storms of life, he manifests the fruit of the Spirit. He'll enjoy a spiritually enriched life, again, which is the fullest life imaginable. But in contrast to the way of the man who is blessed is the way of the wicked. The wicked walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. And unlike the righteous who are like a tree whose leaf does not wither, look what the psalmist says about the wicked. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. With this in mind, one man wrote, Consider Jay Gould, American railroad developer and speculator who had an enormous fortune. When dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Or consider British poet Lord Byron, who lived for pleasure. At the end of his life, he wrote, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Or consider the French philosopher Voltaire who said, I wish I'd never been born. And then think of Lord Beaconsfield who enjoyed wealth and fame and power. He wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. There's no blessedness there. That's why the psalmist says the wicked are not so. They're not blessed. They're not fruitful. The psalmist says they're like chaff. The hole, the husk off of grain. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Of course, the psalmist's mention of chaff takes us back to the farming practices of that time. The threshing floors of Palestine were generally built on the side of a hill that caught the best breeze. The farmer would place the harvested wheat on a stone threshing floor, which was then crushed by animals or, or uh, you know, threshing instruments that were pulled over it. And then with a, a pitchfork or shovel-like object, the, 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 uh, the, the threshed grain was pitched high into the air where the wind would blow the chaff away and the heavier grain would fall back to the threshing floor where it was collected. But the chaff was scattered or, or it was burned. And that, the psalmist says, is what the wicked are like. The wicked are like chaff in two senses. Chaff is worthless, and chaff is burned. 
This picture is the futile, empty, worthless life of the godless, as well as their inevitable judgment. When we speak in those terms of worthless, we don't mean, I mean, they're human beings created in the image of God, though that image is marred by sin. So certainly they have value as, as, as a human being created in the image of God. Worth, they're worthless, though, in the sense or the purpose that God created them for, which is to worship Him, to love Him, and to serve Him. The wicked are worthless, and they will be burned. The Bible tells us that that a day of separation is coming. And this is what John the Baptist said about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You see, in the end, the wicked are destined to be burned in the fire. And to say that that is less than popular today is a gross understatement. But it's the truth. In the end, the wicked are destined to be burned by the fire. And as a result, we read in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The therefore introducing verses 5 and 6 shows us where it's all heading. And when verse 5 refers to the judgment, it refers to what we call the final judgment. And this is why Psalm 1 is no piddly little you know, religious game that we can take or leave. It's as if the psalmist asks us, what are we going to do when the end comes? And as far as the wicked go, the unsaved, the ungodly, they're not going to stand on that day of judgment. In other words, they will not have God's acceptance when they stand before Him on the last day. They will have no adequate defense. They will have, uh, they won't have a leg to stand on. Instead, they will be exposed for what they really are. And they will be justly condemned in their sin and they will have no place in the congregation of the righteous. I mean, all of those who stand with the ungodly, all those who choose to live apart from God and His people in this life will find that they will have no part with them in eternity. But they would want no part with them in eternity. I mean, the Lord, the righteous judge, will separate the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats, and the wheat from the chaff, and no unbeliever will be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. In fact, they will forever be excluded from the company of those who have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in verse 6, the psalmist summarizes the two ways of life, the way of the righteous and the way of wicked. Notice, if you will, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows, it says. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the idea here, uh, this word means far more than a mental awareness, you know, what we call knowledge. This word uh, means far more than that God is informed about their ways. The verb knows in verse 6 does not mean that God is aware of them intellectually and has the godly in his mind. It does not mean that God knows the, the way the righteous take with every twist and turn, though that is true. This word know is used as in Amos chapter 3 verse 2 to mean to choose, to enter into covenant relationship with, to be personally, intimately acquainted with. It speaks of a knowledge which was in living, intimate relationship to its subject and at the same time was inclined to it and bound to it by love. The Jewish Publications Society translation of Amos 3.2 is this, You alone have I singled out of all the families of the earth. 
And that same translation gives verse 6 as, for the Lord cherishes the way of the righteous. So this means then that God has chosen them and has a personal, intimate relationship with them. He is bound to them by divine love and he is involved with them. That you know, He is intimately, personally concerned about every step the righteous man takes in order to guard and guide and grace them. It means that he providentially watches over them and will bring them finally into his glorious presence. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But, but, he says, the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, the ungodly, the unbeliever will be judged and condemned in the final judgment. They will perish. And this word perish is a Hebrew word that means to die or to undergo destruction. And this word is used to describe the loss of strength and knowledge, the, the decline of nation, its nations. It's even applied to the destruction of pagan idols, images, and temples. But when used of people, the word generally refers to death and the cessation of life. But this particular word was also used of the eternal destruction of the wicked beyond physical death. When used of destruction after death, this word was never used of a destruction that led to complete annihilation. Rather, it spoke of an unending, eternal destruction of the wicked that would never cease. And that is the only just and right penalty for those who have sinned against uh, eternal, infinite mercy and grace and holiness. And so when it says the way of the wicked will perish, it means that they will be damned forever. They will be damned forever. It means the wicked will suffer relentless torment in a real place called hell. Always perishing. Forever suffering the eternal wrath of God. Never finding relief from God's just vengeance. No, they will not enter a Christless eternity. For we know from the book of Revelation that they will be tormented night and day before the presence of the Lamb and before the holy angels. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. They are on a broad path that, that may seem comfortable now. It may give them a lot of of company, a lot of pleasure now. But in the end, they will perish. I think of some of the extremely wealthy men who are in the news quite often, men like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, the owner of Amazon, can't think of his Jeff Bezos, and others, they're comfortable now. They have all that money can buy. But they are on the broad road. And they may have lots of company. And those kind of people do because money attracts. But in the end, what will it mean? Because they will perish. Unless they repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they will perish. King Solomon wrote, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a lot of people today that are on a path that seems right to them, and little do they know They're on their way to death, to perishing. That's the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, who described himself as the way and the truth and the life. And he promised to keep those 
who follow him, and he surely will. You know, at least four times in the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way. And certainly, it is the way. It is the way of the righteous, not the way of the wicked. And so we read here, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so that begs the question this morning, which way are you on? Which way are you on? You see, again, it really doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter what type of government you live under. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status may be or your ethnicity. You know, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. True happiness, true blessedness aren't found in any of those things. The truly blessed man, the truly blessed person is the one who has by grace through faith trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And they have a new nature, and they have new desires, new passions, a new direction. And they love God, and they love his word, and they love his people, and they are seeking to walk in his ways. This is the one who's truly blessed. This is the blessed man. This is the man whose life is filled not with superficial happiness that comes and goes, but with a deep sense of joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction as a result of God's grace and mercy in his life. You know, that's the number I want to be among, right? The blessed. And of course, for all of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ alone, uh, we belong to that company. The blessed. But if you don't, if you're not on that way, if you're on the narrow way, then I would urge you this morning, with all that is within me, to turn, to turn to Christ, run to him. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. That is your only hope. Because heaven is not man's default destination. I've officiated at a number of wedding or weddings, funerals. I've done that too, weddings too. <laughs> Just did one recently, by the way. But um, I've officiated a number of funerals for unbelievers, and they always try to comfort one another by saying, "Well, they're in a better place," because they actually think that heaven is man's default destination, but it is not. The wicked will perish. Heaven is for all of those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And so again this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ alone, I urge you to, to, to turn, turn to Christ, turn around, run to him. Because you've sinned against God, you've sinned against his holiness, his righteousness, you've broken his law, you, uh, and you're deserving of eternal punishment in hell because of that. But this same God who is holy and just and righteous is also a God who is merciful, gracious, loving, and kind. And for no other reason than his great mercy and love, he has provided a way through which man can have his sin forgiven and be reconciled to a holy God, be brought into a right relationship with him. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. There had to be a sacrifice for sin because the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die but it had to be someone who was perfectly sinless. Well, of course, no one on the earth could be found who was perfectly sinless. And that's why God sent Jesus into the world. And Jesus came, he humbled himself, condescended to a degree that we can't begin to understand. And he became a man beyond that, a servant. And he lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. And then he died the death that we deserve for our sin. Christ died for our sin, was buried, rose again the third day, ascended to heaven where he is today at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for those who belong to him. 
and he's going to return someday. But in the meantime, for all of those who have sinned against him and are deserving of death, and that was all of us at one time, but perhaps there's someone here this morning. Uh, your only hope is salvation. God has provided the way that the door has been thrown open. Sin has been paid for. And God in his mercy is calling you this morning to come to faith in Christ. It's his mercy in your life that you're hearing the gospel this morning. And so we urge you to come to faith in Christ. Trust him alone for salvation. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good works. You can't give enough. You can't be religious enough. The only way a man can be saved is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Put your faith and trust in him alone today. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me by your blood We've been set free And Lord, give to us A passion for your word That we may grow and walk in all your ways On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.